We continue the conversation on the talking point and for the next half hour we're going to be reflecting on the latest report by uh, Human Rights Watch and it's the World Report 2022 and part of what this report is doing is calling out leaders in democracies to stop paying lip service to the fight against autocratic states. Uh, Some of those being mentioned by name include US President Joe Biden, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the French President Emmanuel Macron. Well, let's invite onto the program Kenneth Roth, who is the Executive Director at Human Rights Watch. Kenneth, good morning to you and thanks for your time today. Good morning. My pleasure to be with you. You know, oftentimes when we talk about the lip service that democracies, or the role rather, that uh, perhaps democracies and presidents of democratic countries can play when it comes to criticizing um, human rights violations that they see happening in other countries, it always centers around the case of sovereignty, that, well, you know, um, yes, you can condemn, but each country... And each leader has sovereignty over, uh, you know, each country basically has is a sovereign country. They should be allowed to do what they want to do. Um, do you think that that is an argument that actually holds water? Well, you know, actually, that argument was rejected by the United Nations way back in 1948 mm. when they adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Because the very founding of the United Nations, in essence, made clear that sovereignty is conditional. You know, that yes, sovereignty means you know one nation cannot invade another, but sovereignty does not mean that a government can do whatever it wants to its people. Sovereignty is limited by the rights of those people. Um, in fact, you know that's why you know, for example, the world appropriately condemned apartheid. You know, the South African government at the time did not have the rights to do whatever it wanted to its people. And the sovereignty did not justify that because sovereignty is conditioned on people's basic rights. And so that's why, um, you know, obviously nobody advocates, you know, invading another country because of human rights violations. But um, when it comes to the duty of, you know, rights respecting governments to speak out, you know, to try to use diplomatic pressure and the like mm. to, to um, make clear that they stand with the people of the country, that they stand with the people's efforts to enforce their rights against a repressive or autocratic government. That's you know, not only an appropriate thing to do, I would argue that that's a responsibility of governments around the world too. That's what concept of human rights means. When you look at um, where we are with democracies, uh, do you think there's currently a contest between democracy and autocracy? I mean, I think that there is. Um, and if you, for example, look at the, the role that China is playing. You know, China is trying to promote its system as superior. It says, you know, democracy is too messy. We believe that autocratic government is better. And so it's really trying to promote that view around the world. Um, but one interesting thing we saw as we, you know, kind of surveyed the world over the last year to, to write Human Rights Watch's latest annual report is that. Um, the people of the world clearly are siding with democracy. Because what we've seen over the last year is this outpouring of public support for democracy. Mm-hmm. There are people taking to the streets to defend democracy. We saw that in, in Thailand, in Myanmar, in Uganda, in Sudan, Russia, Belarus, 
Poland, Nicaragua, Cuba. I mean, almost every place you look, when when this issue comes to the fore, people are taking to the streets and, you know, frankly, doing it even at the risk of detention or being shot. I mean, I look at the, the people of Sudan, you know, facing um, this brutal military, and day after day, they, they take to the streets and say, we're not going to put up with a return to military rule. And, and that was enough to get the military to you know, back off a few years ago and to, you know, at least nominally agree to power sharing. Now the military is trying to back away from that deal and reassert the military dictatorship, and still the people come out in the streets. So you know, if, if you're an autocrat, you know, sitting in your, your gilded palace, you look out and realize the people don't want to be ruled by an autocrat. They mm-hmm. want a government that is answerable to, to the public. And so... You know, that, it, it shows that you know, there is this hostile environment for autocracy. Right? When people are given a choice, of course they, they choose the right to vote, the right to choose their leaders. And there are good reasons for that, because you know, if you look at you know, who are the leaders who are most likely to, to be corrupt, and they're the ones who sort of you know, try to undermine the democratic system. They try to stand above the law. They try to say that they know we're not answerable to people. And, and we find that, you know, autocracy almost invariably leads to corruption and, and self-serving behavior. But you know, we cited a few cases in the report where um, you know, governments claim, you know, autocrats claim that they are serving their people. But when you scratch the surface, they're serving, you know, the, 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 the military around them, the cronies around them, the oligarchs. You know, a perfect example of that would be Putin in Russia or um or Prime Minister Orban in Hungary, or President Sisi in Egypt. And these are our leaders who are taking the scarce resources, resources that people need for health care, for education, for housing, and they are diverting it to their own purposes. You know, Putin, um, all the oligarchs around him are billionaires. Of course, Putin, yeah. You know, what we're seeing in Egypt. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Of course, one of the, the challenges, Kenneth, is that Democratic leaders, um, and I don't speak for, I, I don't mean all of them, but there certainly has been some sense of losing the moral high ground because all of the issues that you have raised around leaders who don't have the interests of the people first, who are corrupt, who, uh, you know, plunder state resources, that is not unique to autocratic governments. Increasingly, we are seeing leaders of democratic countries being caught up in similar controversies. Um, no, I mean, there is no guarantee, obviously, that a, you know, an elected leader um, avoids corruption. You know, look at the book of Duma. We're all aware of the exceptions. But the great advantage of a democracy is you can vote the corrupt leader out. You know, the corrupt leader is subject to the rule of law, so, so um, prosecutors can investigate. Um, you know, and indeed, um, the South African justice system is, is trying to perceive him. He is, you know, resisting, but it's clear that he is subject to the rule of law, and that is the definition of democracy. So democracies have this capacity to self-corrupt, to, to address um, self-serving, corrupt leaders. An autocracy, almost by definition, doesn't allow that, because the first thing that an autocrat does when they come to power, and almost as if you know, they all read the same playbook. They all follow the same set of um, strategies. They start undermining the checks and balances on executive authority. And those are essential to democracy. I mean, we all know that, you know, democracy requires an election. That's the obvious part. But 
but it requires more than that too. It really requires independent institutions. It requires you know independent media. So, you know we can have a conversation like this on the radio. It requires you know activists to to impress the government to address their concerns. It requires independent judges. It requires you know, a separate legislature that that shares power with the executive. You know, that um, division of power, that checks and balance system, is the key to democracy. And autocrats immediately try to undercut that. They start censoring the journalists. They start imprisoning the activists. They try to compromise the independent judiciary. And, and those are you know, very dangerous early moves that make government unresponsive and more likely to veer toward corruption and self-serving rule. Mm. In as far as the trust in democracy globally is concerned, what are some of the patterns that you are seeing there from, from the research that you have done? Do people continue to trust that uh, democrat- democratic governments are truly the way to improve the collective lives of, of, of people within countries? Well, I have to say, you know, every place we look, when, when this became an issue, people, in a sense, kind of voted with their feet for democracy. They came out to the streets and protested for democracy. It's, it's very rare that you find a protest for autocratic rule. You know, we want dictatorship. That mm-hmm. just doesn't happen. You know, so it, 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 it kind of shows where people are. Now, I don't want to pretend that democracy is perfect. And one of the real points that we made in this report is that there is this global battle, this contest between democracy and autocracy. Um, but even though the autocrats are unpopular, even though almost everybody wants to get rid of their autocrats, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that democracy is going to prevail if democratic leaders don't do a better job of meeting today's big global challenges. Mm. And what we highlighted are you know, the obvious things, but you know, climate change, the pandemic, you know, poverty and inequality, racial injustice, the challenges of technology. I mean, these are the huge issues before us. And one of the problems we observed is that when you look at leaders around the world, you know, they're addressing these huge problems with typically small incremental steps. Um, and there are reasons for that. You know, most leaders are, are stuck in, in coalition governments or, or small majorities. And so it's, you know, it's difficult for them to move forward. But we're not even seeing that many leaders who you know, are using the pulpit of their, their office to, to exert more leadership, to try to rally the public and, and, and legislators to take the big visionary steps that are needed to address these enormous challenges. And we, we cite this, you know, first because it's important that we do a better job of addressing the pandemic, we, that we do a better job of addressing climate change. Mm. But it's also a problem because if the public sees even elected leaders, as falling substantially short. What I fear is that that is going to generate despair and frustration, which are going to give the autocrats a second chance. You know, that kind of despair is the breeding ground for autocracy. And so it's important, you know, not just to better serve the people, but also for this global contest between democracy and autocracy, that we find leaders who have the vision who have the real moral direction to help us get through this difficult time. I think what you're saying there is 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 quite important because when we look at the the last two years that the world has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been other reports done into the responses 
of countries in trying to manage the disease that in some instances were not very democratic and it again raised questions, uh, you know, f from people who were, who were like, well, but, you know, we are supposed to be part of the process. We are supposed to be part of the decision making. And yet governments are choosing to put in legislation that restricts our rights, particularly the kind of rights that are afforded in a democratic dispensation. Um, no, I mean, we, this is one of the problems that we identify as we survey the globe, because you know, obviously the pandemic poses an enormous public health threat. Uh, what we found was too often governments were responding that are not foremost with concern for the health of their people, but foremost with concern for their political future. And so you know, in, in a number of countries, you would get governments who would you know, censor critics of their response. A doctor would say, you know, we, we really think that this policy we just adopted is not helping us get through the pandemic. And the government would respond by saying, you know, we either shut up or you go into prison. Mm. You know, and that's a disaster from a public health perspective. Because, you know, Public Health 101 says, you know, when you have a novel pandemic like this, a virus that we're all struggling to understand, it's essential that you collect information freely and that you debate what to do about the problem. And, and, you know, this is a, has been a problem. You know, we've seen a sort of censorship in, in Egypt and in Turkey and in India, where, you know, a, a democracy, where, where Prime Minister Modi didn't want bad news. You know, he didn't want the political harm of, of um, being charged with mishandling the pandemic. Um, and indeed, at one point, with kind of state elections coming forth, he essentially lifted all of the, the COVID public health restrictions because he wanted the economy to revive in advance of the election, so his party would do better. But that was a public health disaster, just with you know, a gift to the pandemic. So we see that kind of self-serving politicizing of the pandemic, which really does not serve the public. And indeed, you know, the place where this started, I have to say that, you know, probably the most dire example of this was what happened in China in Wuhan, you know, where the outbreak began during the first three weeks. Because in January 2020, as we were all struggling to understand, you know, what is this new um, you know, new virus emerging out of Wuhan, the Chinese government censored information the doctors were trying to tell us about that the virus spread human to human. And you may remember back then, that's when the Chinese government was trying to pretend that the virus only came from that one market. And, and it was just directly from the market. It didn't spread between people. And indeed, it went so far to maintain that fiction that it prohibited doctors in Wuhan from wearing protective gear because that would undermine the cover story. That would, you know, puncture the lie that was in fact widespreading between people. And for three weeks to maintain that lie, three weeks that literally millions of people passed through Wuhan or fled from Wuhan, and as a result, we have a global pandemic. So that just illustrates that, you know, censorship is the enemy of public health. It's the last thing we should do mm -hmm. when confronting a, a new viral threat of, of the sort of COVID-19. One of the biggest, you know, impacts of COVID-19 is that it exacerbated some of the existing um, inequalities that we had in our society. Poverty, of course, has also increased in places. What do you think is going to be the, the real burden for leaders in democratic countries to try and mitigate the consequences 
of that because the more unequal a society becomes, the more breeding ground there, there is then for that instability, for people to be disillusioned, as you said, and to actually think, well, maybe the system we have is not working for us anymore. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, going into the pandemic, we already had an enormous problem of poverty and inequality. And, you know, this is a classic issue where, you know, leaders would give lip service, they would maybe make small gestures to address it, but they were not confronting it in a, in a wholesome way that would make a difference. Now, you know, the, the, when the pandemic arose, it was interesting. It was kind of, it was double-edged, I have to say. On the one hand, you found particularly in certain wealthy countries where suddenly they were spending very significant money to provide a degree of social protection. And you know, so that's the good news here because you know, before the pandemic, they would say, oh, no, we don't have the money. We can't possibly provide social protection. Suddenly, the pandemic arrives, and boom, they find money. You know, and so that um, you know, opens up a range of political possibilities that actually just wasn't there before the pandemic. Now, the real challenge is how to maintain that and how to broaden it, because the social protection that was you know, done country by country, but it was not done on a global basis. So in a sense, I mean, in the United States where I'm from, poverty actually went down during the pandemic, which is remarkable, but it's because the U.S. government provided this emergency social protection. But if that can happen there, you know, if there's a recognition during the pandemic, that people are mired in poverty, you know, not because it's their fault, but because of circumstances. And that we all have a responsibility to make sure that everyone has you know, basic housing, basic health care, sufficient food. If, if, you know, if that can recognition can arise in the course of the pandemic, why can't we maintain that, first of all, at a national level? And second, why can't we extend that to the rest of the world? And the, the, the place where I think we're getting a bit of an opening with respect to a global perspective on poverty, is precisely around health. Mm. Because the one thing that the pandemic has shown us is that you know we are now in such an interconnected world that you cannot say, oh, you know, we're just going to leave um, that part of the world alone, and if they have health problems, you know, that's their problem. Because with with infectious disease, you know, given travel today. It goes every place very, very quickly. We've seen that with, with COVID-19. And the best you know, antidote to that is to ensure that there is basic health care every place. Because you've got to have you know, doctors who are going to be on the front line, who are going to identify viral threats, who are going to be able to you know, say, look, I think we have a problem here, and enable the world to respond. You know, ideally, without the censorship that we saw in Wuhan, but rather you know, with openness. And um, that is going to be everybody's best protection. But that's going to require investment, not investment just in, you know, country-by-country health care. It requires global investment to ensure that everybody has access to basic health care. Mm-hmm. And I think there is growing recognition of that. So that is, you know, maybe the silver lining in this very difficult time. One of the issues the report highlights is around climate change and the missed opportunity there. 
um, for democratic leaders to be taking the lead in pushing for reforms globally. And and unfortunately, part of what we have seen is that, uh, you know, democracies themselves have been responsible for um, the large emissions and have fallen short of meeting their own commitments and targets when it comes to ensuring a more carbon-friendly earth. Um, yes, and sadly, you're 100% correct. And, you know, when we talk about the failure of democratic leaders to rise to the challenges before us, you know, the, the, the two biggest things we cite were, you know, first, the pandemic, and second, climate change. And if you look at, you know, the, the, the Glasgow Summit, I mean, on the one hand, it's not as if the autocrats are doing better. You know, Vladimir Putin of Russia, Xi Jinping of China, they didn't even bother showing up in class now because they had nothing to offer. Um, but, you know, the Democratic leaders did show up, and the commitments they made were still short of what we need. You know, so yes, they, you know, marginally reduced um, carbon output. You know, they made some, some, you know, some positive steps, but nobody pretends that that's sufficient. We still are, you know, just rushing toward climate disaster. And this is, you know, this is, I think, a difficulty of our current political systems in that, you know, no leader is elected for more than, you know, four years max, let's say. And, and it's very difficult for them to take um, some of the painful decisions whose cost is going to be felt today, but whose benefits, you know, may be down the road, you know, way past their term in office. And, and that's why we issued this call for visionary leadership. It's not enough for us to continue with business as usual, because business as usual gives us these short-term incremental solutions that are just not good enough for an urgent an emergency like climate change. And you know, I, people have asked me, so who is that visionary leader? And I, I have to admit, I don't, you know, I don't see anybody acting in a visionary way today. Um, I think people have that capacity, but so far they're falling short. And that's really why we issued this call, an emergency call, for the kind of you know, big-picture, long-perspective leadership that today's urgent, urgent challenges like climate change really require. Mm. Kenneth, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for this morning. Uh, the quality of the connection is is just not holding up. Kenneth Roth, of course, is the executive director of Human Rights Watch. And I, I do apologize for that poor audio uh, quality connection that we had there. Uh, we're going to be taking your latest news 